Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast where I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. My name is Michael Ian Black, and today in Connecticut, it's a chilly day. My library is a little bit overheated, and I'm feeling a little bit overheated as I fret about poor Jude. Poor Jude, who, when last we saw him, had abandoned everything that he knew to head into Christminster, where his beloved professor had gone to uh, to go to university. And, and poor Jude, wee wee Jude, just a child, really, uh, had a job, and he got fired from his job, and he had parents, and then they died. And so he lived with his aunt, who said, well, it's probably better if you died too. And everything just seems terrible for Jude. And the last sentence in the second chapter is, as he's leaving town, it says, Here the plowed land ended, and all before him was bleak, open down. So things are not looking great for Jude right now. But consider for a moment the idea of heading out into the world on your own as like a 10-year-old kid. You know, basically like Huck Finn, uh, but in England... And with no particular street smarts, no raft, no friend named Jim, he got nothing, this boy Jude. And so he's, he's heading out really obscure. And that's kind of, you know, that's built right, that's baked right into the title there, the idea of obscurity. And it's like he's running away from home, except that, you know, generally when you run away from home as a kid, you got somebody at home who cares. Jude doesn't have that. Chapter 3. Not a soul was visible on the hedgeless highway or on either side of it, and the white road seemed to ascend and diminish till it joined the sky. At the very top, it was crossed at right angles by a green ridgeway, the Ichneald Street, an original Roman road through the district. This ancient track ran east and west for many miles, and downed almost to within living memory, had been used for driving flocks and herds to fairs and markets, but it was now neglected and overgrown. Of course it is, because everything in Jude's world is neglected, bereft, bleak, miserable. I should remind readers, I have not read this book before. I'm reading it for the first time as I go. That's part of the premise. The whole idea is I've never read Jude the Obscure, never had any desire to read Jude the Obscure. Jude the Obscure for me was obscure. And so uh, as I read it, I'm reading these words for the first time. 
The boy had never before strayed so far north as this from the nestling hammock in which he had been deposited by the carrier from a railway station southward one dark evening some few months earlier. Until now, he had had no suspicion that such a wide, flat, low-lying country lay so near at hand, under the very verge of his upland world. The whole northern semicircle between east and west, to a distance of forty or fifty miles, spread itself before him, a bluer, moister atmosphere, evidently, than that he breathed up here. So maybe a little hope, maybe just the tiniest little bit of hope for Jude as, as he notices this bluer, moister atmosphere. Not far from the road stood a weather-beaten old barn of reddish gray brick and tile. It was known as the Brown House by the people of the locality. He was about to pass it when he perceived a ladder against the eaves, and the reflection that the higher he got, the further he could see, led Jude to stand and regard it. On the slope of the roof, two men were repairing the tiling. He turned into the ridgeway and drew towards the barn. When he had wistfully watched the workmen for some time, he took courage and ascended the ladder till he stood beside them. "'Well, my lad, and what may you want up here?' "'I wanted to know where the city of Christminster is, if you please.' "'Christminster is out across there by that clump. You can see it. At least you can on a clear day. Ah, no, you can't now.' "'Well, I, I mean... I'm just saying, thinking to myself, it just, uh, Thomas Hardy just gave the impression that it was blue and moist and clear and you could see, but I guess it's not clear enough to see Christminster. The other Tyler, glad of any kind of diversion from the monotony of his labor, had also turned to look towards the quarter designated. You can't often see it in weather like this, he said. The time I've noticed it is when the sun is going down in a blaze of flame and it looks like, I don't know what. The heavenly Jerusalem, suggested the serious urchin. Ay, though I should never have thought of it myself, but I can't see no Christminster today. So, already, so now, we're starting to get into some religious allegory here, right? Allegory? I like to use that word allegory. I've used it before. And in point of fact, I really don't know what it means. Something like symbolism, like a fable or a myth, but not a fable or a myth or a symbol. It's an allegory. So uh, uh, so in Jude's mind, in poor little stupid Jude's mind, Christminster is like Jerusalem. So he has this vision of holiness in his head as he looks out to the horizon and lo, it cannot be seen. Do you get it, guys? Am I reading too much into it? The boy strained his eyes also, yet neither could he see the far-off city. He descended from the barn, and, abandoning Christminster with the versatility of his age, he walked along the ridge track, looking for any natural... Wait, so now he's not even going to Christminster? He's been walking for like 20 minutes, I feel like, going to Christminster. And now he abandons it with the versatility of his age because he couldn't see it? Well, what is that? No wonder you're such a loser, Jude. You have no 
You have no gumption. Come on, boy. Get some gumption, why don't you? He descended from the barn, and abandoning Christminster with the versatility of his age, he walked along the ridge track, looking for any natural objects of interest that might lie in the banks thereabout. When he repassed the barn to go back to Marygreen, he observed that the ladder was still in its place, but the men had finished their day's work and gone away. It was waning towards evening. There was still a faint mist, but it had cleared a little except in the damper tracks of subjacent country and along the river courses. He thought again of Christminster and wished, since he had come two or three miles from his aunt's house on purpose, that he could have seen for once this attractive city of which he had been told. But even if he waited here, it was hardly likely that the air would clear before night, yet he was loath to leave the spot. It says L-O-T-H, and so I, I had to make a split-second decision. Do I pronounce it loth, loathe, or loath? I went with loath. For the northern expanse became lost to view on retreating towards the village only a few hundred yards. He ascended the ladder to have one more look at the point the men had designated and perched himself on the highest rung overlying the tiles. He might not be able to come so far as this for many days. Perhaps if he prayed, the wish to see Christminster might be forwarded. People said that if you prayed, things sometimes came to you, even though they sometimes did not. Well, yeah. I mean, you wish upon a star, and most of the time the star says, ah, to the fiddle with you. Oh, to the fiddle with you, it says. Most of the time you pray, nothing happens. But I was listening to an interview last night on one of my favorite podcasts called On Being with Krista Tippett. And she was interviewing the author, uh, memoirist, and poet Mary Carr. And Mary Carr is known as a kind of a salty, that's the word Krista used, salty memoirist. She deals in the carnal, not to say erotic necessarily, but in the, in the meaty stuff of life. And her books are about her hard scrabble upbringing in East Texas and her alcoholism. And one of the things about Mary Carr uh, that I didn't know until this interview is that she is a long-practicing and devout Catholic, which caused her some embarrassment when she came out as a Catholic in public in Poetry Magazine some 20 years ago, because all of her author friends and such tend to treat religion and mysticism with a certain amount of disdain. And often they will say to her, Mary Carr... How do you believe in this mumbo-jumbo? Why do you pray? And Mary Carr responds by saying, I tell them to just pray for 30 days. Pray for 30 days and see if your life doesn't get a little bit better. It's one thing I say to my friends who are atheists, you know, I say, look, why don't you, I mean, you think I'm so full of horse dookie. Why don't you pray every day for 30 days and see if your life gets better? And my guess is that it will, um, just because if you think, I mean, you know, let's say there's not a God. Let's say I die and there's not a God and the worms eat me and that's the end of it. Daring to hope every day. 
it's much it's much more radical i think to hope uh than to live in the despair i was born to am i going to pray for 30 days in a row listeners i don't know but i know how jude feels that sometimes you pray. Sometimes things come to you, even though they sometimes do not. But I am interested in this idea of hope. So I'm going to call up someone who has thought quite a lot about this. Uh, oh, yes, it is that wise lady of the podcast that I have mentioned, Krista Tippett, host of On Being, my favorite thinker of thoughts. Now, Krista, like, well, Uh, most of us, has not read Jude the Obscure, but she knows about engaging in existential religious questions. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The nature of hope itself, because it seems to me that hope has to have a certain amount of dread in it or else it rings kind of hollow. And I, 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 I kind of wanted to get your take on that. Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree, because if hope has dread in it or is familiar with dread, experiences dread, then it is based in reality. And otherwise, it's wishful thinking. And to me, that's the difference. That's the distinction to me between optimism and hope, right? I feel that optimism is kind of wishful, uh-huh. but hope, if it's meaningful, if it's a virtue, is reality-based. And that means that it is a muscular choice that takes in the fullness of reality and is working with the actual work to be done and the darkness and what goes wrong. And of course, facing those things means that you're going to have an experience of dread and despair. Oh my God, and that is so much more, with hope. so much more profound than I was... <laughs> Even, even uh, uh, hoping for to use that word, <laughs> but there was no dread in it because I because I knew you would know what you were talking about. That makes a lot of sense to me. That hope is a muscular action; it requires some doing. So that's exactly what Jude is doing. Jude is doing everything by hook and by crook to attain. Uh, this knowledge that he seeks. He's begging for books and he's studying his poor little wretched ass off. And then fate, of course, keeps throwing obstacles in his way. As fate does. To <laughs> I kn- all of us. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Was there any kind of particular hope that you nursed when you were young that you felt like you were actively pursuing Hmm. well i grew up in this small town in oklahoma and the world was this dark this void that i i kind of i I believed in but i you know i had not been there and i couldn't be sure and i didn't i didn't really know anyone else who'd been there as i started to understand the world out there so so I was like collecting clues about it and evidence of its existence. But yeah, so at some point, and this is not my whole childhood, you know, but at some point I did create this hope about a life I could have and build, but it was beyond my understanding. Mm-hmm. And of course there was, you know, there was a lot of dreaming in that, but there was also, you know, fear and, and some dread and, and danger. But most good things encounter those experiences or you know are acquainted with them or they or those things are always possibilities when we're 
when we're stretching ourselves, including when we're stretching ourselves to be doing really, you know, to be doing better, to be doing good things, to be having adventures and, and making the world a better place, like whatever that means. If we say that hope is is acquainted with dread, right, that, that, that that's inevitable, that's an inevitable part of choosing to live this way, then it's also true that none of us can carry hope on every single day. Like there are days for each of us when that's too much to ask. So I also think we have to, you know, kind of surround our, if we're, choo- if we're choosing to flex this muscle, then we also have to surround ourselves with people who can carry it on the days when the dread is overwhelming. Now I'm going to get personal. Is that where, for many people, religion comes into place? Yes, and but you know, I don't necessarily like. It could be the, you know, text and teachings and readings and prayer and those things. Yes, but I also think, to me, it's more the aspect of religion that is about, um, you know, not just community, but. You know, for me, something that I that I discovered when I like because I grew up in this very kind of Protestant, you know, American Protestant, actually very bound up with this American self-made man thing. So, you know, you go it alone and there was not a lot of ritual. And one thing that I really discovered that was important was this notion in in the in the sweep of Christian history, which is like the communion of saints, mm. you know, the cloud of witnesses, but it's also just, it's like, it's so, so for me, and also cause I'm pretty bookish, you know, for me, it's been re it's having people like, I mean, St. Augustine, it's not that important for me, but, uh, and it's not even all Christian teachers, you know, it's like Pema Chodron's book, who she's a Buddhist teacher, like called her book, when things fall apart, which is of course, and which they always do, you right. know, <laughs> they're always doing that. And so it's having these teachers nearby or, you know, a Thomas Merton mm-hmm. or Rilke for me as an important person. And, and he wasn't a traditionally religious figure, but his, you know, his like letters to God are just so amazing and has such expansive imagination about God. But I do feel those people as companions, right? Like on this journey. And I think that when I, and that was true of me and maybe it has its roots of me as this kid and in this, in this small town in Oklahoma. And I didn't, didn't have that flesh and blood community around me. Right. So you can put your hope when you have a hard time carrying it onto these Mm -hmm. teachers. Oh, Krista, you have given me so much in so (laughs) so little time. Well, good. Call me anytime. It was fun. That was Krista Tippett, host of On Being, and you're listening to Obscure. I'm Michael Ian Black, and of course, my task here is to read to you Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy out loud and comment on it as I go, and I will do that after a short break. If you are listening to Obscure, there is uh, roughly a 0% chance that you do not love Paul F. Tompkins. And if you are an Earwolf fan or a Paul F. Tompkins fan or both, you need to listen to Paul's improv podcast, Spontanea Nation. He is not only one of the finest mustachioed men in all of America, he's also one of the funniest. In honor of Pride Month, Paul has all LGBTQ 
guests and improvisers to help him make merry on his funny Spontaneous Nation podcast. Uh, Cameron Esposito and Rhea Butcher are this week and other guests this month. Stephanie Beatriz from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Earwolf favorite, Drew Tarver, all of them getting together, being all gay, being all prideful. Subscribe to Spontanea Nation now, hear it every Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Obscure. I'm ready to read. I have my reading voice on. I've just put, I've just put, I've just put my reading voice on. Uh, and it fits me like a Uniqlo hoodie. That's how comfortably it fits me. All right, we're in chapter three. He had read in a tract that a man who had begun to build the church and had no money to finish it knelt down and prayed, and the money came in by the next post. Another man tried the same experiment, and the money did not come, but he found afterwards that the breaches he knelt in were made by a wicked Jew. Hold on a second. Wait, hold on. Wait a minute. We were, we were doing so well. What happened? So the one guy wanted to build a church. He had no money. He, he knelt down. He prayed. And the next day, uh, and the money came. Another man tried the same experiment. And he didn't come because the breeches he knelt in, I mean, his, pa- his pants, the pants he, were, he was wearing were made by a wicked Jew and therefore no money was coming. Well, in fairness, I have to say, as a Jew, we're very tight with our money, guys. I mean, we're known for that. We don't, we're not just going to be handing out money to every Tom, Dick and Harry who wants to build a church, whether you've bought our pants or not. You know, you bought our pants. We've upheld our end of the agreement. We gave you the pants. But now if you're going to, if you're going to turn around and pray in those pants, which by the way, are going to get very muddy and who's going to do the laundry for you? Am I supposed to do your laundry? No. If you pray in those breeches, you're doing your own laundry. And so he didn't get, he, it didn't happen. Uh, he didn't get his money because his pants were made by a wicked Jew. What the fuck, Thomas Hardy? This was not discouraging. And turning on the ladder, Jude, oh yeah, it wasn't discouraging for Jude because his pants weren't made by uh, Jews. So it's fine. And turning on the ladder, Jude knelt on the third rung, where, resting against those above it, he prayed that the mist might rise. He then seated himself again and waited. In the course of ten or fifteen minutes, the thinning mist dissolved altogether from the northern horizon, as it had already done elsewhere. In about a quarter of an hour before the time of sunset, the westward clouds parted, the sun's position being partially uncovered and the beams streaming out invisible lines between two bars of slaty cloud. The boy immediately looked back in the old direction. Some way within the limits of the stretch of landscape, points of light like the topaz gleamed. The air increased in transparency with the lapse of minutes till the topaz points showed themselves to be the veins, windows, wet roof slates, and other shining spots upon the spires, domes, free stonework, and varied outlines that were faintly revealed. It was Christminster, unquestionably, either directly seen 
were miraged in the peculiar atmosphere. So his prayers were answered, guys. He prayed to see Christ Minster, and and then uh, not a quarter of an hour later, Christ Minster was revealed, and the allegory continues. If you pray for Christ to be revealed and have patience and faith, you will see Christ, so says Thomas Hardy, so says Jude, uh, with the caveat, of course, that your pants are made by anybody other than a wicked Jew. The spectator gazed on and on till the windows and veins lost their shine, going out almost suddenly like extinguished candles. The vague city became veiled in mist. Turning to the west, he saw that the sun had disappeared. The foreground of the scene had grown funereally dark in near objects put on the hues and shapes of chimeras. He anxiously descended the ladder and started homewards at a run, trying not to think of giants. Hearn the hunter, Apollyon lying in wait for Christian, or of the captain with the bleeding hole in his forehead and the corpses round him that re-mutinied every night on board the bewitched ship. He knew that he had grown out of belief in these horrors. And then I think it looks like my wife, whose book copy of the book this is, you know, uh, Penguin Classics, and she got it in college. It looks like she's underlined here in some sort of thin orange pencil. It says she underlined, he knew that he had grown out of belief in these horrors. I'm not sure why she underlined that unless it is getting back to the allegorical elements of the story, which is to say he had outgrown childish beliefs the childish fear of giants and captains with holes in their head, but he had not outgrown the fear of wicked Jews. It says he knew that he had grown out of belief in these horrors, yet he was glad when he saw the church tower, again, the church providing a beacon, the church providing reassurance, the church providing home. He was glad when he saw the church tower and the lights in the cottage windows, even though this was not the home of his birth and his great aunt did not care much about him. And I'm starting not to care much about him either. So far, so in chapter two, he heads out for Christminster. And then in chapter three, he gets about two or three miles away so far, goes up on a ladder, doesn't see Christminster. It's like, eh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go home. Uh, walks around for a little while looking for stuff on the road goes back up on the ladder, looks, sees Christminster, and is like, I'm going to go home again, but I'm afraid of giants. Back to the book. Inside and round about that old woman's shop window with its 24 little panes set in lead work, the glass of some of them oxidized with age so that you could hardly see the poor penny articles exhibited within and forming part of a stock which a strong man could have carried. Jude had his outer being for some long, tideless time. But his dreams were as gigantic as his surroundings were small. Well, now we've just heard about giants a moment before, and giants in Jude's mind are something to be feared, and yet his dreams are gigantic. He himself is the giant in this scenario because his surroundings are so small. So one must ask... Is Jude afraid of his own dreams? 
Now, when I was Jude's age, about 10 years old, I had declared to my mother, my, my parents were divorced, and I don't think I shared this with my father because I, I, I would have known of his disapproval, but I shared with my mother that I was going to be an actor. And when a 10-year-old tells you what they're going to do with their life, the natural and correct instinct is to say, okay, that sounds great. Because earlier, probably in the last few months before that, I had said that I was going to be a long-distance truck driver. And before that, I was going to be a baseball player. And she treated those ideas with as much seriousness as she treated the idea of me becoming an actor. And why would she take that seriously? We didn't know any actors. There was no possibility of me becoming an actor. How does one even do that? There's no career path if you're 10 years old and living in a townhouse in New Jersey. There's no ready career path where you go, well, I'll just walk down this road towards my own Christminster, which in this case was New York City, never Hollywood, always New York City. And, uh, and I'll just, I'll walk down that road and become an actor. And I'm trying to think if I was afraid of that dream. Was that dream so gigantic that it scared me? Not really. I don't think so. Uh, although my surroundings also felt very small, uh, least of all, because we lived in a very small townhouse with my brother, older brother, my younger sister, my mom's partner, Arlene, and her son, Greg. And we lived in this little shitty townhouse in this shitty neighborhood in this shitty town. Back to the book. Through the solid barrier of cold Cretaceous upland. I don't know what Cretaceous means, but I, I guess lobster. It's like a lobster, right? That's what you eat, a Cretaceous. Through the solid barrier of cold Cretaceous upland to the northward, he was always beholding a gorgeous city the fancied place he had likened to the new Jerusalem, though there was perhaps more of the painter's imagination and less of the diamond merchants in his dreams thereof than in those of the apocalyptic writer. And the city acquired a tangibility, a permanence, a hold on his life, mainly from the one nucleus of fact that the man for whose knowledge and purposes he had so much reverence meaning his old teacher, who in the beginning of the book packed up his shit and went to Christminster, was actually living there, except for the piano, which he left. He left the piano because it was a pain in the ass. He's like, you know what, I'll deal with the piano later. He was actually living there. Not only so, but living among the more thoughtful and mentally shining ones therein. So for me, New York what really was my Christminster. I, I had gone there. I didn't just see it. Like I had gone there uh, with my mom and we we had hung out in like Washington Square Park and uh, there were street performers there and we had I don't even think I'd ever seen a show like a Broadway show or anything there but I had been there and I kind of knew instinctively that this is where I belonged like I just kind of knew that it was a thought that inhabited me and and just live there and I knew that I was going to go there and become an actor and so uh, essentially from that moment on from the moment I, I first went to New York and the moment that I first had the idea of becoming an actor those two ideas were wedded together for me and it it just I, I i just had a purpose even as a as a 10 year old i suppose having that kind of purpose is sustaining when you're not happy 
um, the idea that the, the present may be terrible, but the future uh, could be great. There might be this opportunity at some point down the line to just get on a New Jersey Transit train, pay eight bucks to the conductor, now much more expensive probably, and just go to New York City and set up a new kind of life there with all the kinds of people, uh, as he puts it, the more thoughtful and mentally shining that I want to hang out with. I want to find the thoughtful and mentally shining people. I mean, who was living in New York when I was thinking about it? Andy Warhol and the talking heads, all the great Broadway actors and actresses and uh, anybody you could think of was living there. Andy Rooney, my God, Andy Rooney was living in New York City at that time. In New York at the time did not have the kind of painterly qualities that Thomas Hardy ascribes to Christminster. If anything, it was the opposite. It was grimy and dangerous. When I went to NYU, some of my friends did get mugged. How do you like that? I remember uh, my friend Thomas Lennon, late of Reno 911 and The Odd Couple and many other things, used to parade around in, uh, he, he always wore a suit jacket and cowboy boots. And then one night, he was walking back from wherever he was, probably uh, late at night, and uh, I think a couple guys just beat the shit out of him and took his money, and, and he walked around for a few weeks with just a big shiner, just had a big black eye. So with that violence, I think we should take, take a moment, okay? This is obscure. Okay, this is obscure. Back to the book. In sad, wet seasons, though he knew it must rain at Christminster too, he could hardly believe that it rained so drearily there. Whenever he could get away from the confines of the hamlet for an hour or two, which was not often, he would steal off to the brown house on the hill and strain his eyes persistently sometimes to be rewarded by the sight of a dome or spire, at other times by a little smoke, which in his estimate had some of the mysticism of incense. Then the day came when it suddenly occurred to him that if he ascended to the point of view after dark, or possibly went a mile or two further, he would see the night lights of the city. It would be necessary to come back alone, but even that consideration did not deter him, for he could throw a little manliness into his mood, no doubt. The project was duly executed. It was not late when he arrived at the place of outlook only just after dusk, but a black northeast sky, accompanied by a wind from the same quarter, made the occasion dark enough. He was rewarded, but what he saw was not the lamps in rows as he had expected. No individual light was visible. Only a halo or glow fog overarching the place against the black heavens behind it, making the light and the city seem distant but a mile or so. So it, uh, apparently objects in mirror uh, may be closer than they appear. He set himself to wonder on the exact point in the glow where the schoolmaster might be. He who never communicated, communicated with anybody at Mary Green now, who was as if dead to them there. In the glow, 
he seemed to see Philitson promenading at ease, like one of the forms in Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. I'll be honest, uh, just as I didn't know uh, what Cretaceous means, I've heard Nebuchadnezzar. I, I know that name, but I don't know who that is. But apparently he's got a thermos, fir- not a thermos, a furnace, and there's forms in it that he looks at, uh, and, and they seem to be glowing with ease. He had heard that breezes traveled at the rate of 10 miles an hour, and the fact now came into his mind. He parted his lips as he faced the northeast and drew in the wind as if it were a sweet liquor. You, he said, addressing the breeze caressingly, were in Christminster City between one and two hours ago, floating along the streets, pulling round the weathercocks, touching Mr. Phillotson's face, being breathed by him, and now you are here, breathed by me, you the very same." Now, this kind of language, this sort of loving uh, language between a boy and his teacher in, in present day, feels a little creepy. I'll be honest. It feels just the, the weeest bit creepy. Little British bachelor schoolmaster who has left the town in a hurry. Feels a little bit creepy. Suddenly, there came along this wind something towards him, a message from the place from some soul residing there, it seemed. Surely it was the sound of bells. The voice of the city, faint and musical, calling to him, We are happy here. (laughs) We are happy here. (laughs) What's nice, what's so sweet about this, is that Jude, poor, poor little Jude, like, that's all he's looking for, right? He, he lives this miserable life with his aunt and he's, he looks to this city. He looks to Christminster and all he, all he aches to hear is we are happy. We are happy. Happiness is possible. You just need to walk towards it. It's just, it's the breeze can carry you there, Jude. You're tasting the breeze on your tongue right now, the breeze of happiness. If you just let it blow you towards it, you will find happiness in abundance. And if the taste of the breeze won't get you here, we will send you the music of our joy, the bells from Christminster pealing out. We are happy here. We are happy here. And you just know he's going to end up in Christminster. (laughs) It's all going to go to shit. You just know it's going to go to shit for poor Jude. I think I should end there. I think I should end with a note of hope, but with the underlying sense of dread that always accompanies hope. Can there be hope without dread? I'm going to leave that question with you. And so that's where we leave Jude peering out into the darkness and the glow fog of Christminster, listening to the sound of hope, tasting the taste of hope, pining for his teacher and the thoughtful and mentally shining ones with whom he walks. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, I want to thank you for listening to Obscure, hosted by one Michael Ian Black, 
who himself finds himself uh, constantly on more the dread side of hope than the hopeful side of hope, but persisting nonetheless. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com and subscribe, won't you, in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you do not miss one exciting episode of Judy Obscure. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedron. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at midroll.com. From the wilds of Connecticut, I'm Michael Ian Black. Dolly, y'all! This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Riza Licea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aquí Presents! We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿qué es lo que? Lo que no está picando. Lo que te pica. Don't worry, we'll tell you what that means if you listen. We'll also be joined by a new guest every single week. We'll get to know a little bit more about their lives. Every single week. Uh-huh. And then we'll make them sit back and watch us improvise their lives right back to them. Improvisation. <laughs> Spanish Aki Presents premieres July 16th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Hola, Nezea. Spanish Aki Presents. <laughs>